0: This will be the scripture for today's message. I'm reading from 1 John 1:5 through chapter 2, verse true. Now hear now the word of God. This is a message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Amen.
1: Thank you, Jim. Why don't we bow this morning? Our God and our Father, what a weighty text it is that we must consider this morning. And simultaneously, what a joy-filled text. Full of reminders of what it is that you have done for us through Christ Jesus. God, I pray this morning that as we consider how it is, that we can be assured of salvation, that you would help us to understand the perspectives and attitudes that we ought to have regarding sin and regarding what Christ has done for our sin. God, may this time be a time of edification for the body and of challenge to those who do not yet know you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. First 1 John. Chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. Last week, Pastor Daryl kicked us off. And he helped us to know that John is writing to help us know how we can have eternal life. Verse 13 of chapter 5 says that John is writing so that we can know that we have eternal or everlasting life. And John begins to lay the foundation of our assurance in verses 1 through 4. And Daryl preached that for us last week, and he reminded us that the truth that we base our life on is not someone's opinion, it's an objective truth, it's real, revealed truth, and it didn't just appear and become true, it's been true from eternity past. It's revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ who is in the beginning, and here we have the one who is in the beginning, who made the whole world, coming to remake the world in himself by dying and to rescue creation. It's a wonderful story, is it not? It's a a beautiful picture of a God who loves. Who's more gracious than we could ever imagine. But you know, the story isn't very helpful if the story isn't your story. This is what John wants us to know and to consider in verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. Is the story really your story? You know, if I got up on Christmas morning with my kids and they were opening packages and opening packages and we got somewhere through the display of Christmas packages and they were having fun and wondering when the big gift was gonna come and then I proceeded to tell them a story I said you know there's a dad who's wrapped up four Disney tickets in a Christmas package and after they open this package they're gonna forget about all the gifts they've already opened and they're gonna climb in the car because he's taken a week off of work And they're going to pile in the car, and they're going to get in the car, and they're going to roll down the road to Orlando. And for a week, they're going to stay at a Disney hotel, and they're going to do all the things that you can do. They've got an armband and a pass, and it's going to be great. And they tear into that package, and they open it up, and they find a pack of underwear from Walmart. Dad, what are you doing? What are you, what are you talking about? Oh yeah, it's 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 Tommy and his kids. They're they're doing it. It's objectively true. Their kids are opening up a wonderful package right now. But it doesn't help you a bit because it's not your story. And here's what John is saying: Does the story of the gospel belong to you? Does it apply to you? The fact that the story's out there somewhere, the fact that God in Christ has died for you, does you no good if you have not received. The benefit of the story. So here's the question this morning. How is it that we who are sinners can benefit from the story? And the challenge that we face is verse 5, is it not? What is the story? What is the message that has been declared? The message is that He is light. That God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. The God who saves dark-hearted sinners is light. To say that God is light does not mean that the photons coming out of these light bulbs are God. It doesn't mean that you can grab your iPhone this morning, flip it up, and turn on your flashlight and somehow turn on God. It's a a metaphor, and it refers to the moral goodness that belongs to God alone, as opposed to the wickedness that lies within our hearts, the wickedness in the world. God is light, and so the question that we have... This morning is how is it that we who are sinners who know the darkness of our hearts, how is it that we can still be assured of salvation? I can't go a day without knowing that I've had a thought or an attitude or an action that's displeased God. How is it then that I can be assured that I know the God who is light? Not only is there no darkness in Him, by the way, there's none at all. In Greek, it's okay to use the double negative when you want to make an emphatic point. That will be heartening for our students in the second service. That They could use the double negative, that that's permissible. But there's no darkness in God, and yet I sense at times this sinfulness within my own heart. What am I to do? What am I to do about the pride that wells up? within? What am I to do about this anxiety that I continue to face? What do I do when I discover that sometimes I sin, t- sin, I sin more, not less? Why do I seem to win one spiritual battle only to discover I've been losing another? Am I, as Martin Luther said, am I simultaneously a sinner and a saint Or am I just a dark-hearted sinner with no assurance of God's salvation at all? We find in the next few verses, verses 6 through verse 2 of chapter 2, three perspectives or attitudes towards sin which should characterize someone who, though a sinner, is nevertheless assured of God's salvation. Three perspectives, attitudes, dispositions of someone who, though a sinner, is assured that they have everlasting life. Sinners who have confidence they belong to God do three things. First, they walk in the light. We see that in verse 6 and 7. Second, they have a deep awareness of their ongoing sin. And third, they confess their sins with complete confidence in Christ alone. First, sinners who have confidence they belong to God walk in the light. In verses 6 and 7, we get two contrasting hypotheticals. The language in the Greek is, suppose that you were walking in the darkness, verse 6. And then in verse 7, suppose that you were walking in the light. What, What would these tests reveal to us? If we are walking in the darkness and yet say that we have fellowship with God... What does that say about us? It says that we are liars. If we walk in the darkness, to walk means the overall course and pattern and direction of your life is that which could be characterized by darkness. You're walking in sin, you're repetitively sinning, and you could really care less that God the light has a contrasting view of the behavior in your life. You're just walking around in darkness. But if somebody says, do you belong to God? You say, sure, I belong to God. What, in those circumstances, what would that mean about your life? It would mean you're a liar. You're lying to yourself about your relationship with God because it doesn't exist. You're lying to others about your relationship with God because it doesn't exist. And you're lying to God about your relationship with God. And guess what? God's not fooled. If you're walking around in darkness... You can say that you know God, but John tells us through his test, you do not know God. You can't claim to know God and have no desire for the things of God. It just doesn't work. Not only are you a liar, but you do not practice the truth. Isn't it interesting that truth is not something merely that we're supposed to believe, but something we're supposed to do. Something that's supposed to be evidenced in our life. Something that we should perform, that we should practice. He says, it's not what you're doing. What is darkness? What is it to walk around in darkness? Darkness is the absence of light. I took my children to Dixie Caverns recently. And at the end of our tour at Dixie Caverns, They had never done this when I toured Dixie Caverns, by the way. It was kind of creepy. But at the end of the Dixie Caverns tour, they made us stand in a circle, told us to hold up our hand in front of our faces, and then proceeded to tell us in just a moment they were going to turn the lights out. And you know what they asked us? Tell us if when we turn the lights out, you can see your hand. Well, guess what? You can't see your hand two inches in front of your face when they turn all the lights out in Dixie Caverns. It's dark. And here's what John is saying. Saying you belong to God while having no moral change in your life is like saying you could successfully navigate Dixie Caverns without someone turning on the lights. The only way that we can walk in the way that God has for us who is light if the light of God is turned on in our hearts and we begin to walk in a new way, which is exactly what John proceeds to say in verse 7. If you want to know that you know that you belong to God, you need to be one who is walking in the light. Verse 7. And if we should say that we walk in the light, then if we should say that we know God, rather, and that we are walking in the light, then there's a consistency there. There's a there's a consistency between our walk and what we profess. There's a consistency between our confession of who we are and of who God is. And what does this produce? It produces fellowship, we learned last week, with God, with the Son and with the Father. But he also reminds us in verse 7 that it produces fellowship with whom? With other believers. It's interesting the progression that we have here. If you claim that you know God and you're walking in the light, then we should have assurance that we know God because it produces fellowship with God. It produces fellowship with other believers. Uh, Colin Cruz says this, there's no fellowship with God which is not expressed in fellowship with other believers. So if you're walking in the light this morning, you should have a desire to have fellowship with others who know God. Have you ever met those people who say, you know, I know God, but I, I really just don't have any interest in church life. Yeah, my parents drag me to church or I might go on occasion, Easter or Christmas, but I really have no desire to be around other Christians. That's inconsistent with the claim to know God and it's inconsistent with walking in the light. John says if we know God, we're going to walk in the light and we're going to be with other people who know this God who is light and we're going to want to walk with them together. And then he surprises us in verse 7. Right after the joy fest of walking in the light as opposed to being in the darkness and having fellowship with other people who also know the light, what does he say at the end of verse 7? And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness what in the world does that have to do with anything I thought you just said I was walking in the light John I'm walking in the light and and fellowshipping with people who know the light and then you bring up my unrighteousness how interesting is it that God has given us the family of faith the family of God the local church the opportunity to have fellowship And one of the results of having fellowship with other believers is that you begin to have your sin more and more and more exposed. It's kind of like the gymnasium of marriage that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Anytime that God brings you into relationship with others and you have a real opportunity to take the low place in the gospel, you have an opportunity for the wickedness of your old sin-stained heart to be exposed and for the blood of Jesus to cleanse and purify you more and more and more until the day you behold your Savior face to face. Sinners who have assurance of salvation... Walk in the light. And that walking in the light produces desire for for fellowship, which actually exposes more of their sinfulness. Which brings us to our second point. Sinners who have confidence that they belong to God have a deep awareness of their ongoing sin. Sinners who belong to God have a deep awareness of their ongoing sin. This... This seems a little bit convoluted, does it not? You just said I was walking in the light, and now, Daniel, you're saying I have a deep awareness of my ongoing sin. Yes, you do. Look at what John says in verse 8 and verse 10. If we should say that we are not having any sin in an ongoing sense, what does that mean? It means we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There were apparently... Some imposters in the church that John is writing about. Some folks who said, you know what, we belong to God, and now that we belong to God, we don't have any sin problem at all. We can come into the family of faith, and yeah, you might have your squabbles in the church, but guess what, they don't have anything to do with us. Yeah, we we know there might be a little issue in the local church, but it's not our problem. It's your problem. What does John have to say about that? You're deceiving yourself. You've missed the point that Christ, in Christ, you're declared entirely righteous at the moment you trust him, but then you spend a lifetime working out the righteousness of God in your life as through fellowship and marriage and relationships and all sorts of things, he shows you the depths of your sin and brings you again and again and again back to Jesus who cleanses you from your sin, and you go, wow, you're a more amazing, more gracious God than I ever, ever realized. Do we see this sort of thinking in our day? Now that I've trusted Jesus, I don't have any issues anymore. I don't have any sins anymore. Unfortunately, we do. Let me read a quotation from you from someone you may have heard on TV. I'm not a sinner. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That is what I were, and if I still was, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's heresy, and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says I'm righteous, and I can't be righteous and a sinner at the same time. Actually, that's exactly what John says. That in Christ, you're declared righteous, and in practice, you're still struggling and wrestling with your sin, but praise God, He's purified you and cleansed you. His salvation and His forgiveness isn't just for sins in the past. It isn't just for the sins of today. It's even for the sins that you will yet commit as you fellowship with other Christians, and the sins of your heart are exposed, and you come to Jesus, and He purifies you from all unrighteousness. If we say that we are sinless now that we know God, John says we don't know God. Yes, God sees us as sinless in Christ, but as we increasingly come to know the depths of our sin and the wonder of His grace as we walk in His light, get this, walking in the light provides greater awareness of our sin, not less. I don't know about you, but that's assurance for a sinner who as they wake up and walk through the course of this life and knows that they've placed their hope and trust in Jesus and they continue to discover stuff about themselves that they wish wasn't there there's hope for a sinner who wants to be assured that they know God as we walk in light more and more areas of the darkness of our heart are exposed if we say this that there's no sin in our life we're deceiving ourselves what's the problem with deceiving ourselves how do you know when you're doing it, right? If you're self-deceived, the, the deception is, is, is hiding, right? It, it's, it's something that's hard to recognize. And I was trying to think about how to illustrate someone who would be self-deceived. And I was struggling to come up with an illustration or example, and then it hit me. My friend, when I used to work at Southeastern Seminary, was a University of Georgia Bulldogs football fan. Sorry, Darrell. Now, there's something you need to know about University of Georgia Bulldog football fans, at least the ones who come from Georgia and never actually went to the University of Georgia. They are some self-deceived people. They... This, this brother, before the spring game, knew all the recruits. He knew all the positions, all the players, all the ones who didn't go to the NFL and had NFL combine times that would have been better than the first-round draft picks. He knew everything about his team, and he was convinced that the University of Georgia Bulldogs were not only going to be the next year's national champion, but after they won that, that they were going to get an invite to play the Super Bowl champion, and they'd win that game, too. Now, that brother, I love him, but he's self-deceived. That's, that's delusion, right? It's just stupid. But the, I, every year, I mean, you can't avoid him. He's coming to tell you how great the University of Georgia Bulldogs are. Spiritually speaking, John is saying this. Don't be a University of Georgia Bulldogs fan. Spiritually speaking, be a spiritual realist who wants your sins, the ones that you're going to commit today and tomorrow and the next day, Be a spiritual realist. Be real about your struggles. Confront them head on. Be an honest assessor of where you are with God. And as you walk in the light, trust Jesus to keep on exposing it, keep on revealing it, and then keep on conquering it as you become more like Christ and Jesus gets the glory in your life. That's what John is saying. Don't be self-deceived. In verse 10, he says essentially the same thing. Not only that these, these who are lying are not only saying that we aren't sinning right now, but they were also saying we have not sinned essentially since the time we trusted Jesus. We've been sinless. We haven't sinned at all is what they were saying. And John says that makes God out to be a liar and proves that the word is not in them. Here's the deal, folks. What's the opposite of being self-deceived about our sin? It's a deep, growing awareness of the sinfulness of our lives. If we're walking in the light and we're pursuing the things of God, as the darkness of our hearts is continually exposed, we will want to confess it and get it out and let Jesus get the victory. What does a growing awareness of your sin look like? I'm 37, almost 38 years old. I trusted Jesus at the age of seven. Let me tell you something about the last five to 10 years of my life. As I have grown in my walk with Christ, I have learned more and more about the sinfulness within my heart. I've learned about the pride and the worry and the anxiety and the pride and the worry and the anxiety. Let me tell you something about myself. When I get tired, I sin more. What is it for you What have you discovered about yourself as you've been walking in the light, endeavoring to please God, that you've discovered, you know what? Here are some areas of vulnerability in my life that God wants to conquer so that Christ can be even more glorified in my life. That's the way a sinner who is assured of his salvation thinks. He knows his areas of vulnerability. He says, Jesus, show me my areas of vulnerability. Show me where I'm not meeting the mark. Show me where I'm falling short of the glory of God. And let me see Christ get the glory in that area of my life. That's the way a sinner thinks who's assured of salvation. But finally, there's one more attitude, one more disposition, action, which should characterize a sinner who is assured of his salvation it's this sinners who have confidence they belong to God confess their sins with complete confidence in Christ alone did you get that church sinners who are assured they belong to God confess their sins with complete confidence in Christ alone look at verse uh, verse 9 of 1st John It's it's a verse that most of us have memorized. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just or righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We claim that verse, we say that verse, but do we confess our sin? The word confess there is ongoing. It's not a, I confess my sin when I was seven years old and I never thought about my sin again. I keep on confessing my sin. I keep on going to the Father through the Son and saying, God, I am a sinner and here's where I'm struggling in my life. And you know what? When I was at the church and I acted that way to that lady or that man or that gentleman, I was in the wrong and please forgive me. And guess what? I'm gonna go to him and I'm gonna confess that sin as well if we keep on confessing our sin. We enter into the forgiveness and the cleansing that God gives only through Jesus. Now, a word about confession. Praise God. Confession means to say the same thing together. It means to agree with what God has already said about our sin. It's to agree with the God about the sinfulness of sin and the fact that only Jesus could pay for your sin. Colin Cruz says, Authentic Christian living means honest and ongoing acknowledgement of one's sins. Now, unfortunately, we need to clarify something about confession this morning. There are some religious traditions that have turned confession into a good work. Well, if I, if I go do something, then I can balance the scales. I got all this sin on this scale, but if I just walk into a priest or walk to a pastor and I just lay a confession right there, that somehow that's okay and everything's good. That, that is missing the entire point of what confession is. Confession is is the cry of your heart and the confession of your mouth that says, yes, God, I am a sinner. It's agreeing with God that you are a sinner. And it's saying, God, I need you to cleanse me, to forgive me, to purify me. We don't confess our sins with confidence in our confession. We confess our sins with confidence in Christ. Do you see that? When we confess our sins, our confidence is not in the quality of our confession, but it is in the quality of the Christ we confess. Jesus is Christ the righteous, verse 1 of chapter 2, and he is our propitiation in verse 2 of, of, ta- of chapter 2. And because of who Christ is, God is what? He is faithful and he is just to forgive and to cleanse. Forgive means that he no longer holds our sin against us. Cleansing means removal, it means to clean, rather, by removal of disease, defilement, or dirt. Have you ever gotten a good scrape? Some good road burn? I was a knucklehead as a teenager, riding down the road with about four other guys on our bikes, and I thought it would be really, really brilliant To take the front tire of my bicycle and to rub the back tire of the bicycle in front of me just you know buzz it a little bit you know what happened (laughs) for each and every action there's an equal and opposite reaction and my tire locked up on that back tire and my body went flying over the handlebars and i slid for about five to ten feet and i picked up my bike walked up the hill to my house walked in and told my parents i've been a knucklehead and then I proceeded to pick gravel and grease and dirt and grime out of every single cut and scrape and wound because here's the deal there is no healing unless there's removal of impurity. And what God has done in Christ is He's taken all the yuck and the mire and the grime and the sinfulness of sin that's in you and He's thrown it into the flesh of Jesus. And because He's done that, He can grant purification and healing in your life. Because of who Christ is, you can have the healing and forgiveness that God gives to His children. We have confidence not in our confession But in the Christ, we confess. John, in verse 1, turns the page a little bit. He stops saying we and starts saying I. He says, I want to say something to you, little children. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. Isn't it interesting that the reason John writes theology and doctrine is so that we won't sin? When I went off to seminary, you know what people told me? Why are you going down to the cemetery, preacher? Why don't you just, you're an okay speaker. Why don't you just start a church and do your thing? The reason is because I needed to grow in my understanding of doctrine and theology because it's doctrine and theology that John gives to us as the antidote to sin. We're not looking for some health, self-help for a little quick fix or some pragmatics. No, it's meditating on the gospel and on who Christ is that allows us to begin to conquer the sin in our life. We're not here for, for a healing feeling. We're not here for some get help, you know, quick fix theology. We're here to marinate on the gospel, to meditate on the gospel and what God has done on the cross for us. When we do that, the hope that John has is that we may not sin. And then what does he say? But if we do sin, if anyone should sin, we have an advocate. John even puts himself in there. Isn't that encouraging? Even the Apostle John says, if, if I should sin, we have an advocate. Who's our advocate? Jesus Christ Christ the righteous. Here we have Malachi's son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Jesus is God made flesh, the very embodiment of the righteousness of God. And because he is those things, he can make propitiation for our sins. Now that's a mouthful, but the word propitiation combines two words in the Greek. One means mercy and one means payment. Mercy means that you did not get what you should have gotten from God. You did not get what you deserved. And the reason you did not get what you deserved is because Christ came and drank down every ounce of fiery wrath that God had pouring out against sin for all those who belong to him. The wrath has already been extinguished in the body of Christ for those who come and confess not The quality of their confession, not their good deeds, not doing one good thing to make up for the other bad things, but they confess their only hope is Christ the righteous. And to those who confess this morning, though you're a sinner, that Christ the righteous is your only hope, John says this, be assured of your salvation. He made propitiation for our sins but we have a question when you read verse 9 do you do you ask this question how is it that God is faithful and righteous to forgive my unrighteousness when we enter a courtroom guilty (laughs) the judge would be right to render a verdict of guilty that would be the righteous action and yet we enter a courtroom uh, though guilty with an advocate now what does an advocate tell typically plea for us when we enter the courtroom what is your attorney going to say he's going to say one of two things he's going to say you're right he did it but how about we plea this sentence down a little bit maybe half time but you know what half of a sentence against an eternal god is still eternity so if Jesus pleads down your sentence by half, you're still going to be there forever. Which means purgatory doesn't work. You, you can't ever pay it off. There's no way you can ever make atonement for your own sins. Only God can atone for the offense that you have against the holy God. So what's the other thing that Jesus could plead for you? He could plead he's innocent. But we walk into God's heavenly courtroom guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. So what on the earth does God plea? He doesn't plea our innocence. He pleads His innocence. He pleads that His blood and His righteousness was sufficient to cover your sin. You see, in God's courtroom, the stakes are far greater. But Christ's advocacy is so much better when He pleads our case. He pleased the innocence of Christ the righteous. Now we've got to understand this this morning because in Christian life, in church life, I've discovered there are many people who are practicing what I like to call offering envelope Christianity. You remember the offering envelopes with the check boxes? Bible read, contacts made, offering included, and whatever other good deeds are on that envelope, you remember those? We still have those, don't we? Now, now, it is true that as we're walking in the light, our lives should be evidencing good fruit. But there's a danger that we begin to place our confidence in the good deeds that we do and not in the Christ who atoned for our sins. And the disposition of a sinner who has assurance is not someone who's checking off a bunch of boxes every week and putting in the offering plate and seeing, I'm okay. My assurance, I just sent it in the offering plate. That is not your assurance. That's not the basis of your assurance. The basis of your assurance is what? It is what Jesus Christ has paid on your behalf. Sinners who are assured of salvation, can say with confidence, Jesus Christ the righteous died and lives for me. He's working His overwhelming light deep into the darkness of my heart as I walk in His light. And as I discover more areas where I'm not living up to God's standard, sinners who are assured put their confidence not in how well they do today, but in the price that's already been paid. Now, this morning, there's really three categories of people that we likely fall into. Some of us here this morning, there's a hardness in our heart about the sinfulness of sin. You say, Daniel, I heard that first point about walking in darkness and knowing God. Well, I just want to do what I want to do. I don't care what you say. I don't care who God is. That's none of his business. Well, it is God's business. It's so much so that God's God's business that he came and died for your sin and he made payment for the sinfulness of your heart. If that's your disposition this morning, John is saying you don't have assurance of salvation. You need to come and trust Christ. There are others of you here this morning that you try to cover up what God has said about your sin. You try to moralize it and relativize it and make it feel good. Well, if I confess this one thing that I did over here, if I do three good deeds to try and cover up the 15 over here, then everything's going to come out in the wash. You're playing this intellectual game about the sinfulness of sin in your life. And to that, John says, you don't have assurance of salvation. Yes, you're going to continue to sin, but come to Christ who is the light. Let him expose the sin. Stop being self-deceived and watch Christ get the victory in your life. And then there's some of us here this morning who fall into a third category. You know you're a sinner. There's things in your life in the deep recesses of your heart that are awful. You've lied, you've stolen, you've cheated, you've deceived, you've disrespected your parents. You've done all sorts of things and you think there's no way that a God could forgive Bless you, Pastor. Amen. Here's the truth this morning. The gospel requires you to believe really two difficult things. One, you are so bad that Jesus had to leave the glory of heaven and die for you. And two, God is so gracious, He was glad to come and die for you. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, would you send your Holy Spirit? God, we know your Spirit is everywhere present, but we ask that he would work right now to convict sinners who need to know Jesus. God, I pray you would draw some men and women and some boys and girls today to yourself, placing confidence not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ alone. We rejoice in your grace this morning. We thank you for the price already paid, and we ask that you would move, that you would convict, and that you would draw sinners so that they too can know the joy of knowing that they will spend eternity with God, who is light. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to sing a hymn. It's the hymn that we were singing when, as a seven-year-old boy, the Spirit of God was wrestling with my heart, and I couldn't do anything but run down the aisle and say, I need Jesus. It's a simple hymn, Just As I Am. Just come to Jesus just as you are and let him take care of the rest.